Welcome to The Confab. I'm Eric Felton. This is where the editors and writers of the Weekly Standard get together to talk about what's in the magazine, what's in the news, and whatever else may be on our minds. This week, George Papandopoulos is in the news. Michael Warren's here to talk about the odd assortment of third-raters and sorry hangers-on who have attached themselves to Team Trump. And then we'll talk with Ethan Epstein about the Kremlin's social media ad buys during 2016. Could Russia really have swung the election with $100,000 in advertising? I suspect the social media companies would like us to think their ad products are that powerful. All that coming up on The Confab. Welcome to the Confab, Mr. Michael Warren, White House correspondent of the Weekly Standard. Michael, how are you? I'm great, Eric. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. The Confab studio is ready to roll. Here we go. (laughs) So this week, the name that was on everyone's lips that was not on their lips before was George Papadopoulos. Yeah, it rolls right off the tongue, doesn't it? So he, he was described variously as a great guy a coffee boy, a low-level advisor, or a low-level volunteer, or a foreign policy advisor to candidate Trump. Who is he? What is he? (laughs) So I guess we should first uh, point out, for those who uh, don't know, George Papadopoulos is the former foreign policy uh, advisor of some sorts who uh, pleaded guilty uh, earlier this, uh, I guess earlier last month, uh, back in beginning of October, and uh, and that plea was released by the Mueller uh, uh, special counsel's office uh, he's, uh, he's, this past week. In other week. words, he's the guy who's really regretting having volunteered for the Trump <laughs> campaign right about now. Exactly. Uh, he was at the time 29 years old. A um, uh, some built himself. Uh, he was living in London. He built himself as an energy consultant. Wow. Energy uh, consultant. Exactly. I love the the, the vagueness of uh, consultant is vague enough, and then you add energy, and it really kind of gives some gravitas to to the uh, otherwise vague uh, description. You know, there's a lot of big money involved whenever you're talking about energy. Oh, absolutely. Um, and then the London thing is, I think, a nice touch as well. So George Papadopoulos was uh, uh, was kind of kicking around, interested. You could tell from some of his graduate work uh, in. In politics, being somebody uh, somewhere in, in in politics, he volunteered very briefly for the Ben Carson campaign. We all remember uh, the uh, once and never again president, ben, future president Ben Carson. And then in about March of 2016, he joined up with the Trump campaign, still living in London, but was advising somehow was on an advisory committee for national security for the Trump campaign. Now, and, by the way. What the heck is the Advisory Committee on Foreign <laughs> Policy or, uh, or National Security in the Trump campaign? Was there really a group of people who were getting together and hammering out policy for the for the would-be president? Uh, no. <laughs> in short. Now, in a— I mean, there barely is in the White House. Right. In a normal campaign, there is. I mean, this is sort of one of these uh, hallmarks of a normal presidential campaign that Donald Trump and his campaign did not replicate. And supposedly this was, uh, you know, one of the many rules that the Trump campaign was breaking. They didn't have any sort of policy team or outfit to speak of. I talked to somebody uh, who worked on another campaign 
uh, another Republican campaign uh, earlier this week for this story, who pointed out that there were probably three actual policy papers, if you want to even call them that, that were released by the Trump campaign. Um, uh, and one of them was, uh, you know, cribbed from, uh, a, uh, I think it was a Jeb Bush uh, VA, you know, Veterans Affairs reform uh, idea. It was, it was a low energy policy paper. <laughs> exactly. Um, to, to, to quote a phrase. Um, and so, I mean, these are, this is the kind of thing that if we remember, if we can remember back in the before time, uh, kind of in the midst of the Republican primary, Donald Trump was kind of getting hammered for not being serious enough on policy. And, and, and this National Security Policy Committee or, or Advisory Committee or whatever was, was kind of put together very loosely as a way to combat this. And in fact, later in March, so uh, Papadopoulos joins the, committee, uh, the, joins the campaign in this volunteer capacity at the beginning of March. About mid-March or late March, uh, the president, uh, the future president, I should say, the candidate Donald Trump meets with the Washington Post editorial board and is, I think, handed a list maybe just before he walks in or as he's speaking to them of his foreign policy advisory group. And he lists off George Papadopoulos uh, among Great them. Great guy. Great guy is what he said. Um, now, on what planet do you bolster your foreign policy bona fides by trotting out George Papadopoulos? Uh, well, on the, on the planet where uh, you are an outsider candidate, who has no pol- uh, foreign policy, uh, you know, egghead group to point to um, Papadopoulos. I, you know, I can't speak to his um, his intelligence or what he knows. But uh, at, at 29 years old uh, and after kicking around, he kicked around at the Hudson Institute, which is a conservative, small conservative think tank, although he was never on staff there. He's an intern in a kind of a research contractor um, and, and doing some work in London, uh, he didn't really have the credentials. In fact, one of the uh, credentials, one of the top credentials on his LinkedIn page was that he was the 2012 U.S. representative to the Geneva International Model United Nations. Um, so, um, Model UN. Exactly. A lot of these guys who are on these for, again, normal presidential campaigns, you know, they have, you know, 10, 15 years experience at a uh, at a think tank uh, doing research or in a, in a university setting. Um, but, but this would be kind of like a guy who had once been a bat boy for the Texas Rangers claiming that he had been in the majors. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the Trump campaign at the time was willing to to u- at least use his name uh, to sell uh, to sell the fact that they had this this team. Uh, and uh, we should add uh, that Papadopoulos also attended a meeting on March 31st of in Washington of the uh, famous national security team. He had uh, Donald Trump was there, Jeff Sessions, who was the then the Alabama senator, and for some reason, not having much of a portfolio in national security, was the chair of this national security foreign policy. Well, God knows uh, at least he commission. knew more than George Papadopoulos. <laughs> exactly, uh, and so that's sort of wh- his position now. Let's get into uh, just very quickly this guilty plea. What is what is Papadopoulos guilty of? Um, he's essentially admitted that he lied to the FBI back in January of 2017, shortly after President Trump was inaugurated, uh, and the FBI was continuing to investigate this question of whether or not people around the Trump campaign uh, had uh, had you know, illegally or improperly colluded with somebody in the Russian government or a Russian nationals in some illicit way. 
And Papadopoulos uh, uh, was interviewed by the FBI, and it, now he admits he in this guilty plea that he lied to them when he said that um, he had tried to uh, he had these conversations with a, a contact of his, a Russian professor in London, um, who uh, claimed to have contacts in Russia who had quote dirt on Hillary Clinton. Uh, and uh, what what Papadopoulos had claimed at the time was that uh, he had uh, talked to this person before he ever joined the Trump campaign and uh, nothing ever came of it. Well, it, it turns out <laughs> that was a lie, according to Papadopoulos himself. And according to this guilty plea, he says that he was speaking to this professor who claimed to have a contact who had dirt. And then he was talking with one particular contact and spent uh, the better part of six months trying to coordinate a meeting between these Russians, uh, whoever they were, some of them in uh, apparently the foreign ministry, foreign affairs ministry, and people in the campaign. And in fact, was talking with people in the campaign, uh, his direct supervisor, who we now believe to be Sam Clovis. Uh, uh, he was uh, even emailing with uh, people like Corey Lewandowski, the campaign manager, or Paul Manafort, the campaign chairman, who, of course, was indicted this week by uh, uh, by Mueller's office, uh, by the grand jury uh, that Mueller has uh, has set up. And, and so um, it, it turns out that uh, uh, this the, this lie has thrust this kind of nobody, this coffee boy kind of into the middle of all of these legal problems Trump and his associates find themselves in now. But the bigger question that all of this brings about is what does this mean for Donald Trump's claim famously that he gets the best people, <laughs> only the best and the brightest, the top the top deal makers, the top people? This, uh, well, uh, this will shock you, Eric, but it's not always true, actually, with Donald Trump. He doesn't always hire the best people. And I, th- I think this is actually uh, a... a uh, a quality of um, of Donald Trump is that he seems to not simply attract, and his campaign seem to not just attract, uh, you know, climbers, um, people who were looking to make a buck, uh, people who were sort of uh, underqualified, uh, but wanted to make their, uh, their make themselves uh, more important to the campaign. I talked to people who worked for other campaigns. He said these types of people just kind of crowd around campaigns they, they they're hangers on they they, they sort of they want to be involved they know they got to get their foot in the door uh and sometimes they they come and they say well i've got this plan to really sell us or this is how we can um uh this is how we can get votes in this particular state um the the difference that uh that i found is that in the other campaigns there are People, there's an infrastructure. There's a there's a kind of uh, group of of people that protect the campaign and the candidate from people like this. Um, right, many of them are organization. Exactly, and it's a uh, uh, it's an underappreciated concept uh, in in political campaigns. These are people, and this is an organization that again protects the candidate, not always from malicious hangers on. So a lot of them are well meaning, but but they may not. Um, necessarily have the candidate's best interests uh, in heart. They may be foolhardy. They may make bad decisions. And you've got somebody who is representing your campaign or even associated with your campaign doing uh, foolish things. That's detrimental to the campaign. But there's no way that a presidential candidate can himself vet 
every player, every every person working on the campaign would be impossible. So the challenge is who's capable of putting together an organization that can do the vetting. Well, this is the job of the campaign manager or the job of the campaign chairman or the the sort of official or unofficial committee of people who help run the campaign for the candidate. And that doesn't seem to be there for for Trump. It wasn't there during the campaign. I, I would argue it's not even really there for the Trump presidency. We go through a list of names. I mean, one, one of the names I mentioned was Sam Clovis, who was uh, George Papadopoulos's uh, direct supervisor, uh, who himself doesn't really have uh, the credentials. He was a, a radio talk show host in Iowa. Um, who, uh, who kind of had I think, one or two failed um, runs at statewide office uh, as a Republican and kind of uh, grabbed on to the Trump campaign. And uh, they made him a campaign co-chairman with really little experience and um, wasn't even really, he wasn't able to deliver Iowa for, for Donald Trump in the primary. Um, you have uh, you have people like uh, that have some you know connections to the to the Trump uh, larger Trump world. Boris Epstein was a guy who uh, I came across during the campaign who was, I think, Eric Trump's roommate or friend from Georgetown University. Um, There's a credential for you. Exactly. Uh, who had actually a brief stint in the White House as well. He was in the communications operation there. Uh, Don't forget Scaramucci. <laughs> and then there, of course, is Scaramucci. Who could forget Scaramucci? How could you forget Anthony Scaramucci? I mean, this is a guy who um, has no apparent qualifications for communications director, except for the fact that he's willing, and he was willing more than just about anybody, to bombastically defend the president uh, in a very Trumpian way. Um, and of course, he was, uh, uh, I guess, hoisted. Uh, by his own petard uh, and out in 11 days uh, after <laughs> after that uh, interview with uh, the New Yorker's Ryan Lizzo where he just but about we, scorched everybody. We missed the sunglasses. Yeah, this, those uh, those women said, well, well, you'll have to get uh, Jen Levitz in here to talk about that. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a hallmark of, of, of Trump's political career to have these people in these positions. It didn't seem to have hurt him in his campaign, but with this George Papadopoulos guilty plea and, and whatever else comes out of the Mueller investigation, uh, it could end up being a bigger problem for him uh, now that he's president. Michael Warren, White House correspondent for the Weekly Standard. Thanks for joining us on the Confab. Thank you, Eric. Now we welcome to the Confab Mr. Ethan Epstein, Associate Editor of the Weekly Standard. Ethan, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. So this week there were big hearings on Capitol Hill where senators had the, uh, they wanted the CEOs, but instead they got the uh, legal counsel of various tech firms, social media firms uh, up on Capitol Hill to find out about the nefarious Russian interference in the U.S. election and the role that social media and social media advertising played in that. Tell us a little bit about the hearings. Right. So, I mean, the social media companies came down and they were in kind of an interesting position, right? Because they sort of needed to pretend that they felt chagrined that ads on their sites had uh, influenced the elections. But of course, they also have the business uh, imperative of suggesting that their ads are important. Uh, so, so they kind of need. So, if they can get the the public to think that um, that social media ads have a, can can have such an effect that they sway an election, what can they do for? you know, toothpaste and deodorant. Precisely, or, you know, indeed for future presidential campaigns. So 
what what they did was sort of uh, you know this routine with you know more in sorrow than in anger. We we are chagrined to report that our our Facebook ads were so effective that they reached 126 million people, and, and they may have influenced the elections, and we feel just terrible about it. So that was sort of the party line, primarily from Facebook, but not exclusively. We've also heard from Twitter, uh, YouTube, you know, Google, and YouTube as well. Uh, all heavily suggesting that the nefarious Russian plot to buy ads may have, in fact, swayed the election away from Hillary Clinton. So there are two questions to to get to. We'll we'll get to both of them. One is, is social media advertising really that effective? And two, do the number of clicks and hits in these particular campaigns um, represent the kind of response that is a meaningful one mm. in terms of social media advertising. Right. Okay. So to take the first question, I I, for, I wrote a piece about this in our current issue, um, and I spoke with some marketing gurus, some sort of marketing professor types that actually study it academically, and then also some practitioners who have managed campaigns. And it sounds like uh, the social media advertising is not particularly effective. Now, of course, we have a partnership with Facebook at the Weekly Standard, so disregard everything I'm about to say uh, if, if they're listening. Uh, but uh, so here's another example from the corporate world. Procter & Gamble, which is you know a massive a- advertising spender, uh, did what sort of amounted to an experiment. They didn't intend it as an experiment. They just intended to cut advertising spending. But what they did in one single quarter was slash their digital uh, ad spending, which was mostly social media spending, by about $140 million. And you know what happened that quarter? Sales actually rose by 2%. Heavily suggested. It was all the gratitude from people not being (laughs) overwhelmed with uh, Colgate ads. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But to me, I mean, Procter and Gamble, uh, you know, they've been at this for 180 years. They know what they're doing, and that that heavily suggests to me that they they came to the conclusion, and the data seems to back up that they were wasting a lot of money on social media advertising. You know, anybody who's been online, which is to say, all of us, we get barraged with ads, and I've written about this in the past that the ads they they come with the promise for advertisers that um, that the practitioners know so much about each one of us, right? that things can be targeted very exactly and precisely to us. But in practice, and this isn't the social media thing so much as just regular web surfing, in practice, what I find is if I'm looking for khaki pants and I look at a particular khaki pant and then I decide, no, I don't want that, and I go on, I'm followed by ads for the very thing that I've rejected. They aren't anticipating what it is I'm going to want and putting it in front of me. They're going off the very lame proposition that the thing I've already rejected is what I'll buy if only it can follow me around. You will be made to buy those khaki pants, Eric. One one way or another, those khaki pants are coming after you. No, I agree. And in fact, I'll do you one better. Did you ever notice that? If you, in fact, buy the khaki pants, they're still going to advertise <laughs> the khaki pants to you a week later. Like, I don't need seven pairs of the khaki pants. Well, we know you like khaki yeah, pants. Exactly. I, can I interest you in 12 more pairs? No, it's, it's, it's obviously a big mess. And, you know, I bet one thing that you learn to do when you get those khaki pan ads all the time is you learn to ignore them, which is another point uh, that actually a campaign guy made to me, which is in a way that is not true of, for example, television ads – people have a sort of psychological mechanism for tuning out web ads. And that's even without the use of ad blockers and things. And he made another point, which is social media ads in particular are sandwiched between a lot of stupid stuff. Now, people that think a lot about advertising and and buy advertisements know that 
advertising is more effective if it's next to a good product. That's why a, a quality product can attract a good advertiser. This guy put it to me that advertising is only as good as the product it's against. Now, if your social media political ad is against an incoherent screed about uh, you know, Donald Trump or your inane complaint that a flight was two minutes late, then the ad itself isn't going to be as efficacious That's what Twitter either. was born Exactly, for, exactly. My yes. flight's late! Exactly, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, the, the whole structure of social media lends itself to ads that are not going to be very effective. I think we can agree that the ads are not as effective as they, as they portray themselves to be. What about the question of the number of ad hits that and impressions and views that happened in the Russia campaign, even if we were to buy into the notion that we have debunked already that social media advertising is particularly effective, um, if we bought into it, would this campaign have been big enough to be particularly effective. No, and here's where you want to do the sort of mock Dr. Evil thing and put your pinky up to your mouth. I mean, the, hold on to your hat. The Russians spent $100,000 on social media ads, which is not, I mean, it is a minuscule amount, particularly compared to all the other forms of advertising. But Hillary Clinton spent roughly $150 million on television ads alone. So we're talking about a, 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 not even a drop in the bucket. Uh, one other thing I would point out, <clears throat> excuse me, is that even when ads are seen on Facebook, and this kind of gets back to our original point, but the click-through rates, which is to say the people that actually respond to them and then click on the link that they see, are absolutely abysmal on Facebook. And that's according to a, a, pretty, a pretty clever study that uh, PC Mag did a couple of years ago. So what's the future of digital advertising in the political world then? Well, I have to wonder whether the Procter & Gamble example has... You know, people that work at Twitter and Facebook kind of worried because it kind of knocks the legs out from under uh, their value proposition. I mean, let's not forget these. Okay, we call them social media sites or social networking sites. What are they? They're advertising sites. I mean, that's how they make they 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 sell ads. Uh, if it turns out that those ads are not as efficacious as their pitch is, then um, you know they're in trouble. And I think it's only a matter of time before that trickles down to the political world, which is why. Again, I wish journalists would take the claims that the social media guys were making in Congress with a grain of salt. I mean, they have a vested interest in portraying their ads as having swayed the election. And remember that uh, the, the claims are all about the ability using big data right. to hone in on individual people that are the, the people you want to target with your advertisements and your message, thus being incredibly uh, efficient. Which was the campaign that st that put all its hopes in that basket? It was the Clinton campaign. Her, yes, yes, exactly. Uh, time and again, if you, you read Shattered, the uh, the book about the Clinton campaign, and uh, it's fascinating the extent to which they believed they had all of the data driven information that would allow them to incredibly efficiently target every one of their voters, not spend a dime being in front of Trump voters and motivate their people to the polls. And Trump, on the other hand, was making big, broad pronunciamentos, wasn't worrying as much about the targeting of individuals, and uh, that may be a reason he won. Yeah, I think there's a real irony here, which is if there was ever an election that showed 
that advertising, in fact, doesn't matter that much. It was this election. I mean, this was Hillary Clinton hugely outspent Donald Trump on on advertising. She did the kind of micro-targeted advertising you're describing, whereas Donald Trump just went out there and let it rip, just gave speeches. That was basically his campaign, and that's what won. So we're in a bizarre moment where there's now an obsession with ads when we've just had an election which showed that ads are actually irrelevant in the face of a, of a, a you know, a more compelling message and a better candidate. Ethan Epstein, thanks for joining us on the Confab. Thank you. That's it for the Confab this week. Be sure to tune into the Confab and all our podcasts every week. Just go to iTunes or Google Play for a free subscription or go to our website, weeklystandard.com. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Eric Felton. Catch you next time.